Dominic Amato, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me, man. Good to see you here, see you and uh, be here with you, man. Yeah, I appreciate you taking the time all the way from Nashville, Tennessee. My pleasure, buddy. In the in what looks to be a very productive home studio. It is. I needed this one, man. Absolutely. <laughs> I got I got a lot of kids, bro. I needed a room that I could shut the door and make some get some things done <laughs> and not and not hear anything. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Did you um did you grow up in Arizona? Uh, I moved to Arizona when I was 13. I was, yeah, I was 13. I was living before I got there. My mom and dad, we were living in Northern California. And we were living in Stockton, as a matter of fact. And spent five years in Stockton um, before we got to the Valley. And uh, yeah, spent 21 years in the Valley, though, uh, prior to leaving. Uh, I went away for college. I uh, went to Minneapolis for a year, went, came back to Phoenix. It was too cold in Minneapolis. I loved the city, but it was just cold, man. Um, but yeah, I went, came back to the Valley. Um, and uh, yeah, kind of just started my, my career out there and met my wife and got married. And it was, um, yeah, man, the Valley's been super good to me, man. I have nothing but, but love for, for the Valley. Tell me about some early musical memories, um, whether it's, you know, a particular record that really inspired you or, you know, music that was played in the house? Like, how did you come to your instrument? Uh, let's, let's start there. Sure, man. I'll tell you, you know, my mom and dad both uh, are talented musicians and my brother, who's a great singer, he, uh, he and I were just really blessed to be born into a musical household. My mom plays five instruments. She sings, she dances. I mean, she's just really, really talented. As a matter of fact, her bands, she had all girl bands and they performed in Las Vegas. And when we were kids, we uh, would watch like Knight Rider and see like some of these TV shows. And then all of a sudden the camera would be panning through and then we'd look and my mom would be, it'd be like these five good looking girls on stage when Michael Knight's walking through the casino and my mom, we're like, Hey, there's mom. And uh, cause yeah, she used, they used to get all those TV gigs, man. Hawaii five Oh Knight Rider, the A team, all these things. Whoa. So yeah, my mom is crazy talented, man. And, um, you know, and so, and my dad is too, man. He's a tenor sax player, plays flute, all the woodwinds. He's band leader, Detroit, Michigan, you know, stone cold Sicilian. Uh -huh. Like, you know, we came up listening to Motown music, jazz, funk, you know, Cool in the Gang and James Brown and Earth, Wind and Fire and Marvin Gaye and Stevie Wonder. And I mean, uh -huh. my little brother and I had a hell of an education that we were born into, man. Um, and to be honest with you, it's crazy because we didn't even have a place to live really until I was like five, six years old. My parents were on the road, man. They were doing like, all right, we're going to do two months in Virginia. We're going to do two months in North Carolina. We're going to go to New York. We're going to go, we're going to go to all wow. these different places. So my best friends, when I was a little kid and my introduction to the, to the world really was, was, you know, 24 year old black drummers and black bass players. And I mean, listening to this music that has been like shaped my life, man. Yeah. So I, I think that it's one of the most amazing things that has ever happened to me and my, my brother really, you know, as kids to be able to be born into the musical world and be around such amazing players and listening to great music. Um, and then also seeing my father, 
be a band leader and hold people accountable and bust people's balls if he had to. And, you know, all these things. I mean, as a kid growing up, it was just an invaluable experience for me that's helped shape me uh, and all the hats I do and wear as a person who makes a living just in the music industry. So yeah, crazy stuff, man. <laughs> as, as a father, now you have yeah. a number of children, four, five? We have five, man. Five, five kids. kids. Yeah. Can you imagine as a father taking two of your kids basically on the road for the first five years of, of their existence? I can't even imagine it, man. Right? I can't. I can't. I can't. I don't even. I mean, well, I have five and they had two. So that's a little. <laughs> but, but still, I mean, just the, the, the uh, craziness of the freaking music industry and, you know, all the stuff that you don't see coming that you deal with and you have to navigate with. I couldn't imagine bringing two kids and a wife on the road and having to do that. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. It's nuts. Yeah. And, and what was the reason for moving to, to Phoenix? My dad and my mom were at a time in their life where they got out of gigging, being full-time gigging musicians. And my dad ended up getting into ministry, like a uh, Christian ministry. He ended up finding a, a, a church and an organization in the Valley, in South Phoenix, that um, he wanted to partner with. And so he just felt like it would be advantageous for them to leave Northern California and move to the Valley and um, partner with this church that was out there in South Phoenix and start basing out of phoenix because you know it phoenix was on the come up at that time was growing there's an international airport and my dad was like and he was starting to travel a lot for his meetings and all his stuff so he just thought it would be plus the cost of living out there to actually right. get a house was significantly less than northern california so sure. i think that was a big part of it and um you know, I think that was it, man. And we, we kind of just were along for the ride because I was, I think I was 12, just about turning 13 or something. So, yeah. And you did, so you did kind of high school out here. How did you find your instrument? How, I mean, if your father was a sax player, it's kind of an easy connection, right? But did it speak to you kind of early on? It's crazy, man. So my father was a huge Buddy Rich fan and he was a huge, like, funk uh, like music loved the motown stuff loved all that but he was a huge fan of drummers so my dad wanted me to be a drummer so my mom and dad both put me on a set of drums when i was able to walk two three years old i was on drums like learning making my own little kits and pots and pans and oatmeal boxes and putting it all together and so i just took to the drums man that was my thing i mean i love the drums and so i would play and to this day my mom has cassette tapes of me playing the drums here's dominic at three years old here's dominic playing. so and so i used to sit and jam to with these like 25 year old bass players and guitar players and i would be playing drums you know at at three years old man i could actually keep a pretty decent beat and um i yeah. loved the drums man i used to fall asleep with my head on the snare drum i played all the time and that was you know my mom and dad always had instruments around though so i i started taking to the keys i love the saxophone i mean the tenor sax sound was like ingrained in my head like all my i was just like man you know my father's playing and then the guys that i grew up loving um, and then I remember asking my dad when I was about eight years old, I was like, dad, I really want to play sax. I want to play sax. And, and he was like, no, 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 no. He was like, drums is your instrument. If you want to, you can be, he said, if you stick to this, you could be one of the greatest drummers of all time. He was like, listen to these records, pr practice these records, stick with drums. That's it. And he was, and there was no debating that with him. <laughs> it was like, that's it. So I was like, all right. So I stuck with drums. He actually made me the 
the church drummer when I was nine years old of like a 300 member church or 400 member church where I was playing drums every Sunday and he was the band leader. So I was like, all right. So I was practicing hard. I was trying to, to be the best drummer I could, but man, I was drawn to the saxophone too, man. I just was. And so when I moved, when he took us to Phoenix and we left California, he started traveling a lot. I found an old saxophone in the basement and I said, dude, I need to pick this thing up and figure it out. And so he was on the road. I picked it up. I went in my room. I started figuring out, how do you put this thing together? How do you do it? And this, you know, I told my mom, I didn't even tell my mom about it at first. I'm just sitting here trying to put it together and figure it out. And all the years of watching my dad do it. Well, I, you know, a couple days after doing that and messing around with it, I was able to start making noise out of it and this and that. And my mom came in and she's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I want to play this thing. Ma. I was like, I really want to figure it out. I want to play. But every time I asked dad about it, he doesn't want me to touch it. And um, <laughs> she was like, your father's going to kill you, man. She was like, and I said, ma, I was just like, listen, ma, I was like, let me um, just let me do me a favor. Don't tell him about it. And let me just try to figure this out. Please don't tell him about it. And so she was like, she just shut the door and left the room. And that was it. She didn't tell him. Well, oh, bro, man. dude, two freaking years went by. Two years went by and my dad's on the road. He's traveling a lot. And I'm in there practicing my tail off trying to figure this thing out. <laughs> he ends up coming home from this gig like two days early. Uh... And he walks in upstairs and I had a, my bedroom was in the basement. He comes in the house and he goes into the kitchen. And he hears me downstairs. He hears the saxophone playing. And he's like, what the, what's this? What's that? And he asked my mom and my mom's like, she was just like, you know, she, that's Dominic. He's trying to play saxophone. <laughs> and so my dad, and if you have ever, my dad, you know, my, my father is, is no BS. He's like, you know, eyes as blue as the sky and, and no, he's just, he looks like Randy Macho Man Savage. <laughs> he, he, he thrived on, on, uh, on intimidating up everybody. And so he comes downstairs and the next thing you know, he opens up my door and I about crap my pants and he's standing there. just He's like looking at me and he's like, what's going on? And I was just like, man, I was like, hey, I was like, dad, listen, I'm sorry. I was like, I found this horn. And I said, I really want to play. I really want to. I've been practicing and trying to teach myself how to do this thing. And so he came over there and he walked in the bedroom and I'll never forget it. He sat on my bed and he said, go ahead, play. He's like, let me see. Let me watch you. Let me listen to you. And so I was freaking nervous, man. And I, I just started trying to play and start showing him what I was learning. And then he went and he corrected my hands and he was like, you, you know, play it like this, play it like this. And then, and he showed me that he sat there for like five minutes and that was it. He got up and he left the bedroom. That was it. And you were now a sax player. He, it, well, it was no, it was the answer was like, don't put it away. Don't, you know, can't play. He just said, off you go. That was it. And mm -hmm. so, I and that was it, man. That was the last time he actually did anything to say like, well, here, you know, let me teach you this. It was all basically self-taught, man. And I just started, but at least I had his blessing that he wasn't going to beat me, that I, I, <laughs> that I was playing the saxophone. Um, and then, you know, when I, when I, you know, a few years later, when I turned 17, he, he got me a really beautiful saxophone and he started being supportive. He started to see how much 
I really cared and I was passionate. And he recognized my my musical ability was God-given, man. And I, I was picking up music very, very fast. Everything I was putting my hands on, whether it was a piano or saxophones or or whatever, drums, I was just getting it fast. Like um, not only my parents play, but my mom, her her father was an amazing musician, Spanish guitar player. Um, and also taught himself how to play saxophone when he heard my dad play at 63 years old and went out, bought a saxophone and started gigging on it two years later with doubling on guitar and sax. He he played music until he was 87 when he passed away. And then his father played violin. So I'm like me and my brother, like fourth generation musicians, man. It just kind of came to it. It was a God given thing for us. So yeah, I mean that was that was our introduction, man, to the world of music, man. Crazy, right? <laughs> that's, that's crazy. Two questions. One, do you still have that first tenor? It was an alto, and oh, it, was an alto. Uh, it was an alto. No, and you know what? The worst thing. Oh man, I got I got broken into in Arizona in two thousand. I think it was two thousand three, and somebody stole it. Can you believe that, man? Yeah. To this day, I keep telling myself one day I'm gonna find that horn it's somewhere gonna it's gonna up. show up it's gonna, it's gonna show up, up. Oh, yeah man. yeah so did you play in like the high school band i didn't no but i did play i was going to a performing arts school in mm-hmm. south phoenix and mm-hmm. at the time they had a program where you can play concerts and ensembles and in like church groups and stuff like that it was a private school and i would play in that and so i just started playing in every situation, whether it would be that at school or church that I could get my hands on. And then I had a buddy who was a guitar player in the Valley and he was, uh, he's, he's a few months older than me, plays guitar. And he was trying to sneak into clubs and play at like the rhythm room and like every other place that we could try, try to play. Um, there was a place in Tempe. I can't even remember the name of it, man. Um, we would just get in there. I was like 17 years old and we would try to jam and play like blues music while, you know, with a singer. And we're just trying to learn about, you know, getting our own stuff together, you know, at that age, man. Mm -hmm. Yeah. After high school, you decide to study music or? Well, what happened, man, is crazy. So I was all self-taught. I was, everything was all by ear. I was just hearing the music, putting my hands to the instruments and figuring it out. Well, my grandfather, who I told you about, he was playing guitar and sax. He came out to visit and uh, he was sick. He had cancer and he was in his 80s at the time. And he told me, he said, listen, man, he said, make me a promise. He said, don't be like me, man. He was like, you have this gift. He said, but I never learned how to read. I never learned music theory. I didn't know that. He said, if one day you get a chance to go overseas and play with people who are speaking a different language, he was like, you're not going to understand a word you, they're saying with your mouth, but as soon as they put this music in front of you, you're all going to be speaking the same language. So he said, make me a mm-hmm. promise. I want you to learn to get educated, learn how to learn music theory, learn how to read and make me a promise. And I told him that I was 18 at the time and I promised him, I shook his hand and gave him a hug and a kiss. And I just said, I, I promise. And he passed away like a year or two, a year later. And, um, and I'm, I just told my parents, I was like, look, I want to, I want to start learning how to get educated and learning how to read and learning how to learn about music theory and all that. And, um, so I enrolled in college. I started taking everything I can get my hands on that had to do with teaching me music. I just started learning it. When I got back from Minneapolis, I enrolled at Phoenix college. 
I got in the in the the basic Phoenix College Jazz 101 ensemble and was taking. My dad was uh, giving me opportunity to study with one of the guys who was there at the time, and um, I was just practicing my tail off, man, because I wanted it. And then once I started adding, what happened, Brian, was is I started to plateau, man. I really it was crazy because I felt like I could only do so much based off of what I knew at the time, right? And what separates a lot of the great musicians are is is not so much the talent, it's the information. It's what you know what you can do with these chords, or you know what you can mm. do inside this groove and this meter and this mm. whole situation. So that information is what I needed. And um, I had the talent, it was just, and I had the hunger and the ambition, it was just getting this information. So I started studying uh, at Phoenix College for a little while, took a couple of semesters over there. Um, I ended up meeting a keyboard player whose family was very renowned in the Phoenix area, uh, the Chavaria family. Uh, and um, Ernie Chavaria was the older brother. Um, he taught a lot of guys in the valley. And then Ralphie Chavaria was the younger brother. And Ralphie kind of took me, he heard me playing at church when I was like 19. And he was like, you know, he, he kind of tolerated me, I guess. He was on a whole other level with information and his playing ability in, in the world of like harmony and, and all this improvisational music. One day I heard him playing at church and uh, he was playing with a, with a bass player who was very renowned in the Valley. He used to have a jazz club called Chewy's back in the day. Mm, his name mm -hmm. was Jim Simmons. And Jim Simmons was, was very, very prominent cat on the scene and uh i heard jim and ralphie playing when i was 18 or 19 and i just changed my life man i was like god these guys were on such a different level than me i was like i want to learn how to play like that and so i basically just started following those guys around and 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 you know seeing how can i learn how can i learn and they were gracious enough to see that i was hungry and they started um putting stuff together and including me and giving me opportunities to learn and ralphie started teaching me a whole ton of stuff about harmony and mm. theory and all these things that started me off um so i studied a ton i practiced a ton i was grateful to get some instruction and insight from those guys playing with ralphie ralphie started uh, like a, a a band a jazz fusion type of band around town we started playing gigs and developing you know a, a following of people that would come out and start watching our gigs around the valley um and what was that uh, band it, name the name of the band was synergy and um it was uh it was tony Contreras. it was uh robert scott was playing drums and um ralphie and myself and then a couple different guitar players would pop in and um i was just a young kid kid man um and then i started i started getting an opportunity to play with michael uh, or with mike florio and connie and mm. mike and connie were playing um at the point i think at the time they were doing concerts off and on jazz concerts and i would go out and watch them i remember being 16 17 and um I, and they always had great sax players on the gig. And I would always go in there and be like, oh, wow, that's a, you know, the, whoever, you know, whoever they had. And it was a notable name guy. And Mike was great with always getting guys in there. Yeah. And um, so one, it was funny because one day this freaking guy, man, it, it was, it was, uh, it was beautiful, man. He calls me up and he's like, hey, Dominic, he was like Friday night, man, you want to come to the point? and play and uh with connie in the band and i was like yeah heck yeah man let's do it and he was like all right friday bring your horn and come up to the gig so i said all right so i'm over here excited i can't wait to get to the gig how old are you now at this point i'm 20 i'm 20 or 21 and uh <laughs> and so i get to the gig man and if you ever went into this club up there did you ever see that club 
I got here late. I got here in 2003, but I've heard so many stories from Mike and Connie and all those guys about the point. It was a, it was a, it was a scene. I mean, it was you know. a scene. And that, right. that was actually around the year. It was maybe it was 2001 or something like that when, when this happened. Um, so I go to the gig that Friday night and, um, let me grab my, I got a little vino right here. I saw you taking a sip. So sorry. Come on. Take, get a taste. Salud. 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 Yeah. <laughs> little taste. <laughs> so, um, I bring my horn up Friday night and um, I'm so excited to play. I get up to the gig and the gig was real dim. Like it was kind of, the lights weren't bright. It kept it kind of low. It was a cool vibe. I walk in and I look by the stage and there's a, there's a cat pulling a horn out of a bag and dude's standing there pulling a saxophone out of the bag. So I'm like, all right. I was like, like what do they tell me to bring my horn for? Mike calls me and says, bring my horn. So, and, but I see a sax player over there, but I couldn't tell who the sax player was because it was real dark. So I kind of walk around the side and I look and it's Eric Marienthal, the sax player for the Chicory Electric Band. Mm. And he's pulling his sax out. And I'm a huge fan, right, of the electric band at that time. I'm studying my tail off, learning, trying to learn that stuff. And I'm like about to crap my pants because it's <laughs> Eric. And I had never met the guy. I just love his playing on these records. And I was like, man, why did this freaking guy call me? So I went downstairs. I put my sacks back in the car oh, and I was like, I went and I came back upstairs to watch and, uh, and I sit, I go and I sit in the back and, um, I'm just sitting in the back, not talking to anybody watching and Mike and Connie go up there and they start playing. Eric goes up there. He starts playing. Sounds amazing. They, they I enjoy the first set and on the break, I come up and, uh, say hello to Mike and all that. And I'm like, man, why'd you tell me to bring my horn? And he knew what he was doing. And, and so Mike was like, man, did you bring your horn? I was like, yeah. And he was like, man, go get it, man. I wanted to, I want to introduce you to, to Eric, man. Wow. And I was, I was like, oh, son of a gun, man. So I, I went and got my horn <laughs> and, uh, he introduces me to Eric that night. And he was like, Hey, this is Dominic Amato. Dominic is, is a young, hungry cat, man. He really is trying, he's working hard. He's, you know, he's just doing his thing. I think I thought it'd be nice to connect you guys. And Eric was was so gracious and so cool. Eric was like, man, why don't you come up and, and play with us, man? Let's jam or let's do a tune or something. And so I was like, oh, man, all right. So I, I got my horn out and we ended up playing a couple of songs. We played Mercy, Mercy and another song together with the band. And it was one of the most fun and amazing nights, even though I was nervous out of my mind. Mm -hmm. I was just like, man, I could just like instantly feel like this is a guy that I, I really want to learn from and learn some, some information. And after the gig, I actually told him that I said, look, man, I said, I'm, I'm like 21 years old now. And I feel like I'm hitting a plateau in my music. I really wish that I could study with, with, with somebody like you. And he goes, man, well, what do you want to do? You want to come out? He was like, I live in LA. And I was like, man, I don't care. I'll, I don't, I don't care what it takes. I'll save my money. I'll come out. I'll drive out. I'll study whatever. If I could just get a couple of lessons with you, man. And he was like, well, here's my number, man. Give me a call, you know, and then, you know, we'll see if we can't hook something up in the future. Mm -hmm. And so he gave me his number and, um, Mike was cool because Mike, Mike didn't want me. He knew I was studying with Ralphie and like a lot of these guys, but Mike told me, he was like, look, man, you're a saxophone player. He was like, you, if you want to learn how to really become a better player, you got to study from a freaking a great sax player. He was like, you're not going to, you know, and, and he had a, hmm. he had a hell of a point. And, and, you know, that really was really amazing that he gave me that opportunity. And then I called Eric, man, like a week later 
He didn't answer his phone. I left him a voicemail. And man, I think two or three months went by, Brian. Mm. And I never heard back from the cat. Mm. And I left him maybe two voicemails or whatever. And um, finally one night, man, he calls me, man. And his, his caller ID number hits my phone. And I'm like, oh, man. And he calls me. He's like, hey, Dominic, man, I'm sorry, man. I was out of town. I've been on the road. I got your message, man. I'm going to be available next month if you want to come out. And I was like, oh, man, just tell me the day, man. I'm coming. And um, I, he told me the day. I saved up enough money to get gas in my car, <laughs> yeah. drive out to L.A. He actually w- was like, man, come out to my house, man. And we just sat in his front room, man, and hung for two and a half hours. And this cat gave me so much information and things to work yeah. on that day like three, four or five months worth of information. Like I just got to go home back to Phoenix and study my tail off Hmm. until the next time I could get back together with him. Hmm. So that was really a huge um, opportunity for me that helped me set me on a trajectory in my own playing as a saxophonist and also as a musician. And, you know, somebody that I think needed that kick in the pants and that, that motivation of like, look, man, you need this right now, but put the work in, you know, Hmm. here's what you need to do go after it, you know? Yeah. So that was great, man. And that's, and that's Mike, right? I mean, Mike, uh, Mike is the guy behind the guy that, that has, has a plan before you even have a plan. He really saw it coming, man. And yeah. uh, to, to this day, I just have so much love for him and Connie yeah. too. Yeah. Um, you know, and even after shortly, I got home after playing or studying with Eric, I think it was a couple of years, maybe a year or two later, um, that I started playing up at the point. I think Mel had moved to town and I'd met Mel like maybe the year after he was, he was there in the early two thousands or two, two I was around 2003 or so or four. Mm-hmm. And I started playing up there quite a bit with those guys. And, um, it was really, really an education, man, because I was learning so much from them and, uh, and learning a ton from Mel and from Mike and all of the different great artists that he had coming through man from joey d to everybody man so it was a blessing for me man i I don't take it lightly and i'll never forget it you know he he really he saw me as a young kid that really was ambitious and had the had talent but i needed to i needed some help you Mm -hmm. know what i'm saying and he was he was eager to to want to give me a hand with that and and never forget it it was really 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 amazing so the story goes is sponsored by Gensler Amplification. Now I've talked to you about the Acoustic Array Pro. It's an incredible little combo amp if you're a singer-songwriter that needs uh, something to practice with at home or even use professionally. But I'm here to talk to you. They also do other stuff. I mean, you know, if you're a bass player, check out their bass amps. They're also making pedals and. I asked Jeff at Gensler, because I noticed I was on their website, they have this dual function EQ pedal. Now, my main gig in guitar is a Martin. I also have a Gibson that I got as kind of a backup, and I don't love the pickup, and I hit Jeff and I said, man, this EQ pedal sounds like exactly what I need. I can't wait to try it. I will report back. But check out GenslerAmplification.com. They have a bunch of cool shit. We share some history. Actually, I met you through Voce, right? Voce Lounge. This would have been like a fast forward a couple of years, 2009, 8, 9, 10, somewhere around there. Um, do you have any memories that you can share of going up to Voce? And um, I remember 
um, meeting Steve Gadd there. I remember yeah. seeing Benson at the at the bar. You know, like, oh, do you have any any mem- any of those early kind of voce memories that you could share? Absolutely, man. That was to me. There was two clubs that are there were formative clubs. Like these places were like the grounds that I cut my teeth and really learned and got my butt kicked and like saw those guys. Like, yeah, voce was one of them. Got to yeah. meet everybody from George. Well, I met George at the point before that, but I mean, like Steve Gadd and Joe mm-hmm. Pesci and mm-hmm. a lot of the other great musicians that Mike would bring through Steve mm-hmm. Verone and all these guys. Um, so Voce uh, was one of those nights, one of those clubs that I got to just play with so many guys, but listen and, and just, Oh man. I mean, I remember sitting with George Benson at one night on a, just on a break and George was telling me about um he was at his house in hawaii when marvin gay because we're sitting there talking he's having a glass of wine and all of a sudden sexual healing comes on him wake up wake up wake up mm-hmm. and he starts and he stops talking and he looks up and he starts listening and he starts going i remember when we were together in hawaii <laughs> and marvin was going through some personal stuff and he was like we were tearing up the golf course in my in my uh golf cart and he's and, uh, and he was just putting out sexual healing i'm sitting here and he's telling me all this stuff Jeez. and he's talking my ear off like he's known me for for 20 right. years i mean right. so many amazing nights like that um so yeah voce was just uh incredible incredible place and um also bobby c's man bobby c's yeah. was a soul food place that I started playing even before. I mean, it was great. And it was just a great vibe. I mean, George used to come in, Joey, the great Jimmy Smith, the organist, he was still alive. Jimmy would come in there. Um, and at the, at that time we put, um, we put a band together. It was me and Mel, it was me, Mel Brown, uh, Raul Yanez and Dawell Davis on drums. And the four of us put a band together called sacred soul. And, we basically opened that Bobby C's. I went over to Bob Clayton and I remember telling Bob, I said, look, man, um, I got a band and we play jazz and, and soul and all kinds of stuff. I said, I would love to play at your club and man, I'll, we'll play for 50 bucks and some chicken, man. If that, if that'll work. <laughs> and, and he looked at me and he's like, man, you know, he sees this Italian kid, you know, ambitious. And he's like, all right, 50 bucks and some, some soul food, man, let's do it. And I said, all right. I said, the only thing is, is that, we're going to renegotiate. I was just going to say <laughs> <laughs> this contract will be renegotiated. <laughs> we're, we will revisit this. That's right. So we started that out, played Bobby C's. And before you knew it, I mean, before you know it, and you can probably ask Mel and Dawell and those guys and Raul, that place blew up. I mean, it was a tiny place. You could probably only pack about 50 60 people in but i kid you not man that freaking thing was body to body and Mm -hmm. we would play our hearts out and Mm -hmm. that was one of these places that to this day i think if you talk to people who were around phoenix that time 2003 4 5 that was the spot man and uh we we hit there every sunday night for a couple of years and it was you know voce and bobby c's man those were places that i just got just it was just a huge it was like the, you know, like the Village Vanguard was. That was mm-hmm. to me, or or like any any club in LA that you know. Baked is, potato or whatever. That's right, baked potato. Right. That's exactly right. Mm-hmm. Was Bobby C's the spot where? Was it was it on Mill? No, that was downtown Phoenix on Washington and Eleventh oh. Street in Washington. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, it was right downtown Phoenix. So, am I yep. thinking of Chewies? You're thinking of Chewies. That's okay. the place that I mentioned. The guy Jim Simmons. 
Yeah. Jim and his wife, Nancy, used to run Chewy's, and that was in Tempe. And yeah. I was actually, that was before my time. I was just probably, I wasn't even living in Arizona. I was probably eight years old or something, mm-hmm. living in California or something. Gotcha. But he, yeah, they were, so I missed the whole Chewy's thing. But um, I think the guys who were around in the in the late 80s or 90s, Mm-hmm. They would have known about Chewy's. And Chewy's was another one of those places, man, like Voce or, or Bobby C's. Right, right. What took you away from Arizona? And when did you leave? What year? I left in 2013, man. Mm-hmm. And I got to tell you, it was just, I had, you know, Arizona. It was so, uh, it feels, it's like, it's home to me, man. I mean, I can, I could say all these other places are, are where I'm from or I grew up or lived because, you know, the upbringing, we were always moving, mm. but Phoenix is like, feels like home to me, man. I'm still a diehard Arizona Cardinal fan and the Phoenix yeah. Suns fan. And I, I mean, because it was those formative years for me yeah. that I really learned a lot and, you know, and so, um, I learned a ton, you know, um, getting into the, to the, the world of music with the Sonus guys, with the mm. turning group, those guys, oh, brought yeah. me right at, right. When I was playing with Mike and Connie, uh, they brought me in to start playing with turning point. And we ended up recording the Matador record with, uh, the label native language in 2005. And that was another huge education for me. And, and it gave me another insight into the world of touring like doing festivals and then you know just feeling what it's like to stand up and be on a gig and you know the great ricky lawson's playing with the artist right before you or after you and you're seeing this stuff and so that was great man i mean all that was tied to phoenix because these guys were phoenix like heroes right Mm -hmm. and they were bringing me in as a kid man Mm -hmm. and that's why i feel like i got so lucky so blessed because I mean, I got married, man, young. Like I, I jumped in, I met my wife, man. And, um, we got married young and I just was like, look, I want to try to do this thing full time. Like this is all I want to do. And I was working for the Arizona Republic, driving a truck, a uh, dispatch driver, picking up advertisements at 19, 20, 21, while I'm practicing at the freaking park on my break and like doing whatever I could do. And then when I was 20, 21, 22 got married and just said that's it i quit my day job i'm just gonna do music full time and wow. dude yeah 2022 man i'm still by the grace of god thank god i mean just still doing this thing so arizona was one of those it was the place for me man where i learned about the life of a working musician like the volatility mm. of seeing how mm. this freaking thing can be like you could be crazy busy and then all of a sudden feel like the rug is pulled out from underneath of you Mm-hmm. I, um, mm-hmm. I learned so much about that from different people and, you know, situations. And, uh, I was able to start my own bands and start doing my own thing as an artist and not just playing, you know, with other people's bands or, or, you know, that kind of deal. Um, I was able to, right. really, you, yeah, you kind of went from, si- you know, side man. That's right. You know, to band leader. That that's yeah. right. Band leader and artist. I got my, I right. was able to do my first record at two in 2007, put out my first CD and it was cool. We got to put, we got five songs on the radio from that record. And, um, wow. you know, it was like more opportunity, man, festival dates and all these other things started opening up. Um, I was able to really just capitalize on the opportunities that I was getting as best as I could. Um, and just trying to, you know, really treat the game with a lot of respect like play hard but make sure i pay my guys i make sure we're on time i make sure we try to play our tail off at these gigs and leave it all on the on the court you know i mean Mm -hmm. all that kind of philosophy like i just because i came up watching my dad and i came up watching other people that were doing this man that they cared about it like the caring about 
like that mattered to me. Like I, I didn't want to just show up on a gig, whether I was playing on a, with a cover band and we were going to play covers at a club. I wanted to treat it like we were playing in front of 20,000 people. Like I would make us, we would be like, dude, let's go rehearse, man. Let's freaking treat it like a, like it's a concert. And so we did that, man. I mean, it was crazy because there was a band that a cover band that started and um, a lot of people in the Valley still remember this band um, called tribe seven. And there was a guy who was out there who was putting the band together and uh, he, he had put together a bunch of guys that he could tell were talented, but young and wanted to go out there and do it and learn and whatever. Um, so we started rehearsing in his garage for a month and what was crazy is that Mike Florio, again, his name comes up. So he was he was friends with Tommy Serino. These guys were were booking a club in Scottsdale at the time uh, called The Velvet Room. They needed a new act. And so the band that we were playing with, this, this cover band, they came out to the garage one night and they're like, man, we want to hear what you guys sound like. So they drove up and they sat there and watched us and they freaking gave us three nights in a row. At, we went from playing in the garage in South Phoenix to this dope velvet room club in Scottsdale for three nights mm. in a row. And that was the start of me watching and learning how you can actually do this thing, making mm. money, making connections, booking mm. weddings, booking this, turning mm. it into this. And so, I mean, it was, it was just, I mean, if you mix that all in with playing with Mike and Connie to the turning point guys for me doing my own solo project, uh, and then mixing it in with, um, you know, watching my parents do this thing. Like for me, it was kind of, it was in my DNA, man. Like mm. I just was kind of like a sponge and just like, okay, I can, we can do this. You know what I'm saying? In 2000, in 2011, my wife and I were just feeling like, um, it was weird, man. Like we just started feeling like our time in, in, in Arizona was, was kind of coming up and, and, uh, we were like, we didn't know what it was just a weird season in our own personal lives. We had kids, but we were just like, man, and I was working, gigging my tail off. She was just, she was in law school at the time. She was trying to get her law degree. She got her undergrad at ASU, took a year off. We had one of our, another one of our kids and then she's going to law school while I'm going, I'm gigging five nights a week. She, and I'd come home and she, there'd be law books all over the bed and she'd be passed out sleeping and I'd come home and then I'd get up and take care of the kids and do the dad thing during the day while she goes to school. Mm -hmm. So we were just busting our tail trying to get through that. Um, but then she graduated and, um, she finished and we were both like, you know what? Nashville started popping up on our radar, man. I had never been to Nashville in my whole life, never been to Tennessee. I didn't have any family in Tennessee. I, I basically was like, you know, I, all I thought was Nashville was a country town. Mm -hmm. And um, so Nashville just started popping up, though, just from weird little situations that would happen. And so finally, my wife and I were like, you know what? This is kind of weird how this town keeps popping up through people and friends and all this mm -hmm. stuff. We should just go out there and check it out. And I had a friend who used to live in Phoenix who moved to Nashville in like 08, I think. And I called him and I was like, man, I think we, we'd like to just come and check it out. If you wouldn't mind maybe showing us around or something. He was like, dude, come man. Yeah. So we, we, um, we flew out in September of 2011 and we spent four or five days in Nashville and my buddy took us all around town and he showed us everywhere, all the areas, Brentwood, Franklin, East Nashville, all over the place. And dude, I got to be honest with you, man. My wife and I fell in love with this place. I mean, it was like another planet 
dude. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, there's just the quality of life. Um, the people, the way people are very friendly, the way people are like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. And just respectful. And just the whole vibe was freaking different, man. Like mm-hmm. I was like, holy smokes, man, this is nuts. It was really like what they, what I would hear like my mom or, or my family talk about America back in the 40s or the 50s, the good, the, the good old days, right? right. The 50s. And it seemed like that's what it was like in Nashville. So I remember getting back, me and Tahereh were flying back home. And I just remember telling him like, man, I, you know, I was nuts. I can't even believe it. Like the the school, the education was on a whole other level for kids and all that Mm -hmm. stuff. Mm -hmm. And, um, I just remember saying it'd be a miracle if we could ever do this. And, um, but I said, who knows, you know, we just got to get back. I said, that's kind of a long shot, but we'll get back to work. We'll get, you know, it'll, we'll see what happens we get back to Phoenix and we get back into the grind and just start gigging, doing our thing, working. And, um, the next thing, you know, more Nashville stuff starts popping up, you know, mm-hmm. weird stuff like that. It keeps going. So finally, like at the beginning of 2012, I think it was, or it was the summer of 12, she was like, you know what, if this is going to happen, well, let's just put it out there. Let's put it out into the universe and put our faith out there and be like, look, if we're going to do this, let's just set a date. And that if that date happens and we're able to save money for one year, we'll go. And I was like, all right. And so the date was May 31st, 2012. We made that, we, we put that proclamation out there and we just said, if we can save up enough money, we're, we're doing it. We're out. And man, I kid you not, dude, things just started to open up and open up to where we were able to save money every month and still pay our bills and, and take care of our children. We had uh, three kids, almost four. We had our Gianna was just being ready to be born. And um, it was crazy, man. Next thing you know, dude, we're making full on provision to move. We're cutting off the SRP. We're, we're like, we're, and, and, and even May, man, like May 1st, I, I said, all right, we got no place to live out there, but I'm going to fly out there and try to find us a place and rent a house just to see how this goes. And I left out there in 2013 of May, uh, uh, May 1st, and we found a place. The, the first day I flew into town, I found a place and it worked out. It was amazing. And um, so that was it, dude. I told everybody. I was like, kind of put my notice into everything that I was doing at the time. I was, I was music directing for Sister Sledge at the time. I was doing a lot of local corporate gigs and my own artist gigs and all this mm-hmm. other stuff. And I basically just told everybody, I'm out man, I got to go. We just got to do this. Hmm. And I mean, I'll kid you not, man, a hundred percent of my friends and family were like, dude, you ain't going nowhere or you'll be back. In, you'll be back in two months. <laughs> right. Right. And, um, it was just funny because, um, it was such a crazy leap of faith, man. I mm-hmm. mean, it was a nutty leap. I mean, it was crazy. It was just a answering that when you feel something in your heart that you feel like you have to do it, and it's like something that, you know, and my wife was on board full on, like mm. completely 100% advocating for this. Um, you, when you feel that certitude, you got to do it, man. And mm. it, 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 you can't, um, you cannot really, you know, look at all the intangibles. You can't quantify it and look at, well, how's this going to work financially? Or how's this mm. going to do? How, if you feel like something's, you got to do something, you just got to do it. I'm a huge advocate of people just look take a risk, do it, you know? And it was mm-hmm. crazy because we had four little kids, man. Right. But we packed up and, um, you know, we had a going away concert at the Scottsdale promenade and we had probably 500 people out there and wow. had a blast, man. It was yeah. such a great send off. And, um, 
And that was it, man. It, off we went. We packed up. And that was the last show I'd done in Phoenix uh, <laughs> under my name as an artist was that night. And wow. it's crazy. 2013, May 31st. I'm here to tell you about Rare Disease Renegades. Rare Disease Renegades is a nonprofit, it's a 501c3, founded by my friends Billy and Michelle. It's a charity created to accelerate science. In 2020, Billy and Michelle's son, Caffrey, was diagnosed with Duchenne muscular dystrophy. This is a rare disease caused by a genetic mutation that renders muscles unable to recover from activity. It starts with the legs, then all limbs, and ultimately impacts the lungs and heart. There's no cure for this life-limiting disease. Caffrey is gonna be 12 this May, and we need science to move a bit faster for him. I hope that you take a moment to check out rarediseaserenegades.org and find a way to support this worthy cause. Let's get back to my conversation with Dominic Amato. You mentioned Sister Sledge. How did you get that gig? It was crazy, man, because Thanos Onus from Turning Point, a good friend of mine, he had gotten a call from one of the sisters and they had asked him to come on as music director. And um, he called me up and he just said, dude, I just got this gig working for, you know, such a sledge. And honestly, man, they fired their whole band. They want to start fresh. And I feel like you and your guys, you and your band is like the band that needs to be on this gig. You guys wow. would, would kill it. So he was like, I'm wondering if you guys would want to come in and audition. So I said, heck yeah, man. Are you kidding me? Shoot. I was like, so yeah, just tell us what you want us to learn. So I told, I called Ira King. I called D bass. And I called Louis um, Higuera, the keyboard player, and uh, we um, we went in there, learned the music, and then we went out and we auditioned, man. And uh, the girls were very hard on us that day at that audition. It was crazy. And, and I actually talk about this in one of my clinics and my MD masterclass I put together that tell the story of how this is going. And it's like they were busting our balls in that rehearsal, man, in that audition because they wanted to see if we had it. And, and it was you were very hard on Ira that day. They were like, Joni was looking at him like, is that all you got? And like asking him stuff like that. And like, and, and you know what? We, we tried to rise to the occasion and do the best we could. We did enough to get the gig that day, which was pretty cool. But wow. um, that started a journey for us that was a heck of an education, man. I mean, just a heck of an education. I mean, it took us from playing just locally and domestically to, you know, all kinds of opportunities that started to follow, man. I mean, that mm -hmm. was 2008. 2008 is when mm -hmm. I got that, when we got the call to be in the band. In 2010, um, I get a call at 11 o'clock at night and it's the ladies on the phone. They ended up, whatever happened with Thano, I don't know how it went down, but they felt like it wasn't going to work out with him MD. And they just said, we, uh, we, we're making a change at musical director and we think that you'd make a, mu a good musical director. And uh, we want to give you an opportunity if you want to take it. And, and I just said, thank you for the opportunity. It sounds great, like a good, you know, a good challenge. Um, they said, well, if you say yes, uh, we need you on a plane to France in 48 hours. 
and we're going to be gone for three weeks because we're opening for cool in the gang. We got a 13 city tour. And I'm like, what? And I'm like, you gotta be, you gotta be kidding me, man. And I, oh my, God. my wife is in law school at the time. She's like, we, we got kids. We got, I mean, we're sitting here, we've got our hands full and she's like offering me this gig. And I'm like, oh. I said, listen, man, I said, can I just talk to Tahereh about it? And, and I'll let you know, they were like, you need to call us tonight. They were like, talk to her and then let us know. And I was like, I said, and dude, I got off the phone. I explained to Tahereh what was going on and she's just shaking her head. Like oh. we're just both shaking our head. Yeah. And, and, and that also at the time that Homeland Security is issuing all these threats and, you know, don't travel to France at the time because there's tourist crap going or, or uh, terrorist stuff going on over there. Right. And I'm like, oh. So we ended up deciding, okay, she, Tare was basically like, look, if you feel like this is going to be a great opportunity for your career, why don't you do it? And we'll figure it out. Your mom and dad, my mom and dad, we'll, we'll get help with babysitters. And yeah. she had to go to New York too for a law convention and at the time for school. Oh my God. And it was just nuts. But we called the ladies back that night and I said, all right, I accept. And um, man, we got on, I, I put the band together for that gig and it was Ira. It was Mario Mendeville and uh, it was Kendall Gilder on guitar. Yeah. And it was uh, Louie on, on keys and myself. And we, we put that gig together in literally a day. And the next thing you know, we're all on a, on a freaking flight to Marseille. And, <laughs> and we're, we're, uh, we're off and running in, in France trying to figure it out, playing for cool and opening for cool in the gang. <laughs> And it was just mind-boggling, man. Yeah. I mean, crazy, man. Um, and that well, was in 2010. And and if you can put into words, you having grown up listening to Cool and the Gang and pouring over the record and listening to all the all what they do, the music and the everything about that band, and then finally, you know, whatever, 20 years later, you're sharing a stage. With, it was nuts with man. these idols. It was, it was nuts. My my high school, the backdrop to my high school music and hanging with my homies and my buddies and barbecues and basketball games and family hangs was cool in the gang. It was yeah. it was Sister Sledge and Nile Rogers. It was yeah. Earthwind and Fire. It was James Brown. So yeah, I mean, it was really nuts, man. When we got there, I'll never forget the first day we arrived in France in Marseille. We went to the hotel. We walk into the hotel and in the lobby, there's probably about six or seven of the guys from Cool in the Gang just posted up having a coffee, reading the paper. And I could tell because I recognized a couple of them instantly. Right. And of course, right. you, you can tell it's Cool in the Gang because you're in Marseille, France, and nobody else looks like these guys, right? So, right, right. We get, right. so I remember like, holy smokes, man, this is happening. So what, was made, what made it even crazier is that we go out to the sound check. And we go to the gig the next day and we go to sound check and there's a half a dozen of these freaking guys in the audience, just sitting in the empty seats, watching our sound check. And I'm like, Oh man. And this is my first gig as MD. So I'm trying to, to, to not, you know, take a crap and I'm, I'm sitting here making sure we sound good and trying to do this. We end up going out there and trying to do our best. But the guys, the Cool in the Gang guys were not like showing us love. They weren't being cool to us that day in the lobby. They weren't saying anything. They were just minding their business. And we mm -hmm. went out to the gig. They first wanted to see if we could play. 
And then right. what was crazy is that that night we get on the, we go to go on the gig and it's an arena tour, man. So it's big, big places, right. That you're playing. Well, the ladies are in the dressing room. They're not coming out on time and I'm sweating bullets because I'm like, man, I'm not going to start a 13 city tour bus tour with these guys. And they think we're amateurs. We're coming out late, all this crap. So I told my band, I tell the guys, I said, I go in the, into the room, into the dressing room. I said, look, man, I don't care what freaking time it is. Everybody better get their ass on this stage because the, it's this game time. That's it. And mm -hmm. I want everybody on the stage. So I said, 15 minutes before the downbeat, I want everybody at the side of the stage, be dressed, mm -hmm. ready to go. But, you know, so we go out there, the guys are all ready, look sharp. They're ready, ready to go. Well, it's five minutes before the downbeat and I don't see the ladies. I don't see anything. And I'm stressed out. So I said, look, man, if I think what, if our slot was, was nine 30 and we we're going to do 30 minutes, I told the guys right before nine 30, I said, man, get on the stage. Let's go. We're going to get on stage. When the girls get out, they get out. Hmm. And I'm like, because I'm, I don't want these guys to feel like it's on me. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So I send my band up to get on the stage. As soon as they go walking on the stage, the production manager comes running around the corner and he's screaming at me, dude, what the hell are you doing? What the hell are you doing? And he's screaming at me. This is my first gig, man. Hmm. MD. And, hmm. and, and, and he's, he's like, this is not a proper show. I was supposed to do. We turned the lights off in the arena. You got to go. We have to know what you're doing. And he's screaming at me. And I look at him and I say, let me tell you something, man. I said, we're not going to be late. I said, we're doing 30 minutes. We will be, we're going to respect the time slot. That's it. We're done. He storms off. I go up on the stage. We get up there. I told the band to start doing a rumble and start doing some colors. Next thing you know, I see the ladies coming out you know, a minute into it. And, mm -hmm. and so we go out there, we do the show and I got my, my phone on my keyboard on a music stand over here and I'm watching it and I'm watching it to the second. And I'm telling these guys, we're not going a second over, man. We end up finishing. We are family is this is the final song. Yeah. People are standing up in the audience, screaming their brains out, dude, standing ovation. And we end right at, right at 10 o'clock, 30 minute slot. Boom. Done. Our guys go walking off the stage I'll never forget it. I go walking down into the tunnel and this production manager comes storming down the hallway and he's coming for me. And, and he comes walking right up to me and he just goes, you are a professional. And he sticks his hand out and he shakes my hand. <laughs> he, shakes his hand he shakes my hand and he, and he walks off. And I was just like <laughs> shaking. I was like sitting here like, Oh my God. Oh so my. trial by get, fire. Oh Holy my shit. gosh, bro. When I tell right. you, bro, this was crazy. That night we had like a 4 a.m. lobby call right. and we're supposed right. to get to the next city. Right. Well, guess what? It's I tell the band, be in the lobby at 340, 345, yeah. pack yeah. bags, nobody late. We can't yeah. screw this up. We're traveling, we're cooling the gang, two buses. That's it. And yeah. so we get there, the band's all on time, all the cats are there. Yeah. No sign of the ladies. So I tell, I tell the guys, I said, go get on the bus. Let's all get on the bus. Let's pack up. So we get on the bus. We're on there because I don't want, I don't want the tour manager and I don't want cool in the game to see that we're over there, you know, not on time. Right. So next thing you know, bro, it's four o'clock. We're supposed to depart at four o'clock. We are on the bus with our luggage and the manager, the tour manager, who's still with him to this day, Cecil, he comes and walks on our tour bus and he walks into our bus and he looks and he starts looking around and he sees all of us right here. And then he sees no ladies. And then he just goes, we'll see you in the next city. And he just walks out and they leave and wow. they leave us. <laughs> 
but that night he knew that it wasn't me and right. it wasn't my band. And he right. also knew that we respected the time slot yeah. and we did our job. I kid you not, man, that commenced 13 city tour where by the end of this tour, the cool and the gang guys were like brothers to us. Mm. Like they were like the older brothers that took us under their wing and were mm. like, you guys are okay with us now. And mm. the tour manager, I mean, to these, to this day, I mean, these guys are like, I mean, family. I mean, wow. I was just sitting in Nashville three weeks ago and, and we're, my wife and I, and I are sitting here on a, and uh, I get a call from Curtis Williams, the music director. And Curtis was like, man, I don't know if you're in town, but we're playing at this Sherman Horn theater tonight. If you want to come, man, I'd love to see you bring the wife. Wow. And I was like, dude. And so next thing you know, we're, we're at the gig just a few weeks ago. We get to go out and watch the, the gig. And, and after the show, we got to go in the back and hang and just cool. to spend that time. So I mean, I can't, I can tell you stories till I'm blue in the face, but I mean, I've been blessed to, to really have just an amazing run at these opportunities. And I've tried to do my best to just respect it in the moment, like respect the gig, respect the fact that, look, this is a service industry. We have to do our job. We have to be humble. We have to deliver and knock it out and we have to go home and, and everybody's okay. You know what I'm mm, saying? And yeah. just try to make the most of it, you know, and I've been very fortunate to, 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 you know, enjoy this ride, man. Do you still get starstruck? Like, have you, you've met all these incredible musicians, um, legends, icons, a, do you still get starstruck? And if you don't, who would kind of knock you out? If you met that person, Stevie wonder, yeah, that would probably, that would probably, I never got to meet Stevie. I saw him passing by me at Nam a few years back. And I was just like, Oh man, I just had that feeling in my stomach. Like, man, right. that, I guess that starstruck vibe, it'd probably be Stevie. Right. Yeah. I mean, that right. would be an, uh, probably if I could play with anybody still on the planet today, it'd be him, you know? Um, but I, I, I mean, I think, the music, music is very humbling, man. It's a very humbling thing. I don't care how many gigs you've been on or records you've been on. It's a, it's like the great equalizer. Yep. As soon as the, the downbeat happens or the recording light goes on, we're going to find out where you're at right now. Mm -hmm. Doesn't matter how many Grammys you have. Doesn't matter whatever you've done. It's the great equalizer, man. Mm -hmm. And so I, I always feel like, even though I've been able to do this for a living for this long and I've, I've, done what i've done in this i still feel in my stomach when i'm about to play i feel like i want to do great i don't mm -hmm. feel like it's nervousness but i feel like i want to do a great job i want my band and i want myself and everybody else i want to represent i want to do my job for these people who bought these tickets man mm -hmm. i want them to enjoy themselves and the experience today whether it's my gig or an artist gig or whatever i just still feel like I want to do my best. You know what I'm saying? And mm -hmm. so I hope I always feel that way. You know what mm -hmm. I'm saying? Because you can always, I mean, it's humbling, man. I mean, you can have an off night or you can have something where it just doesn't feel like the vibe isn't right, you know? Mm -hmm. And so I just don't, I want to do my best to circumvent that, to get on a gig and always feel like I was able to convey something that connected with these people, you know, who showed up that night. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. I want to talk about kind of what's on the horizon for you. I have fortunate to have my hands in some cool projects right now from on the production side as a mm -hmm. writer and a producer um i co-wrote uh sister sledge's new single mm -hmm. uh co-produced that um it just came out all over the world february 18 and that was a blessing because it's doing great right now in the uk um and 
you know, it was great because it's a pop funk dance song for a legacy artist. So that was a huge uh, deal that's opening up some cool opportunities for me right now. Everybody on the that track is slamming dude hey all right thanks man i love the synth tone oh that synth is like nice and beefy thanks man so tell me about that tune how it came about who's on it where you cut it all the stuff yeah we cut it in nashville man uh all the music was done i did a lot of the stuff here in my home studio i did uh the writing a lot of it here and then tracking the talk box um this is cool um i use the same talk box that it's a new modern technology talk box it's the wireless or not wireless but tubeless mm. so it's the same one that's on the dua lipa track levitating the one mm. that they're got the big lawsuit right now but oh, the yeah. guy who, pl- who played talk box on that song used the same model um and that's it's a it's a really cool new innovative deal man because there's no tube it's all done you hook it onto your neck and it's all vibrating and i use an app on a freaking iphone to trigger (laughs) that sound so i cut that here um the horns i hired some great horn players here in nashville we cut it out here um my buddy paul david uh is a guitar player producer out here in east nashville he co uh co-wrote and co-produced that track with me um he's playing guitar on it and uh, I'm playing Moog bass, all the synths, wrote the horns, did the talk box. And we cut the vocals, some of the vocals we cut in Nashville for the, with, the, with the singers. Mm-hmm. And then we cut also in, at Alice Cooper's studio in, mm-hmm. uh, in Arizona. Okay. So, yeah. And then we um, mixed it out here and had a master, Adam Ion, who mastered it. He's also done Shakira. He's done a lot of great, great records um so yeah i mean it was a it was a great process it was a fun deal man sounds sounds killing man oh thank you man the world of production has just been an education man for me it still is it's living here has been oh gosh you learn from so many guys man and um it's just been neat to get involved in in the actual playing sessions out here and then watching and being a fly on a wall and how guys approach stuff sonically you know with treating vocals and tones and everything like that so i'm loving that part of being in nashville man learning a lot you know what would you say 
um, takes up the the majority of your time? Is it is it touring now, or is it is it more production? Like how how does how does like a have, a regular month for you? I have out? to structure my time like crazy, man, because being a father of five, my wife is a stay at home mom. She got a law degree, but she's never practiced law, man. Because wow. she, how can you when you got five kids and your husband tours and all this stuff? So, um, but still, it's a trip because. I have to get up at five five thirty six in the in, in the morning. I'm up. The coffee's brewing, and I've got my day planned out. So it's like I hit it because, in addition to if you're going to be able to raise five kids and hopefully put these guys through college and and get them going and pay for braces and weddings one day, you have to wear a lot of hats in the music industry. So it's like I wear the hat right. of session player, of producing, of writing, of. Uh, doing tours, playing one-offs. If I'm going to play a corporate gig, if I'm going to play an artist gig, if I'm playing for another artist as a sideman, I've got to, I've got to do all, all kinds of stuff. Plus I've got my company, a group entertainment. We started that back in the Valley in 2007. Uh, it's basically an LLC. It's an umbrella for everything that I do in the music industry. And I can act, I can basically, if based off of my reputation with the buyer or client, if they want, uh, a corporate band or if they want a singer songwriter if they want a duo or a trio and they're like look i need you to give me this can you provide that service and you know because i've been able to do this now for you know years i get a lot of calls and so to do that so basically for me it ends up looking like i'm uh contracting it negotiating it and sending out payroll and making sure that the guys that are on our team show up and can do that and can show up knock it out of the park and i'm not even around for maybe 10 percent of the of the work i'm right. either at home with my family or i'm on tour or i'm somewhere else on somebody's gig so that takes time out of my day not every day but i mean it just it kind of ebbs and flows just like the music business sometimes mm -hmm. we're busy with a lot of that stuff and then sometimes there's hardly there's not a whole lot um so it's good because my day can be sometimes i have days in a row consecutively where it's creative i'm just being creative i'm writing i'm actually doing sessions or i'm producing my own music or somebody else's music um so my day is always i always write before i go to sleep at night i write down old school on my on my notebook my things to do and it's just like and i'll just write it down and then i'll get up early in the morning and i'll try to knock it out and i always have my wife and my kid time in there you know like mm -hmm. having dinner with my family you know or taking the kids or doing something with them on the weekend or something like that but it's a full load man and uh mm -hmm. i think the only way it works is just because being uh, vigilant about staying on top of my time, you know, uh, mm -hmm. adding that time into practice or whatever I got to do. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's, it's, it's a lot, man, but I, I wouldn't have it any other way, man. I mean, I'm very grateful now that this is 22 years, man, uh, that I'm doing this for a living and supporting a family of five and actually living in Nashville now, eight and a half, almost nine years, man, Crazy. had enough money, had enough money saved up, uh, you know, to last me four months. <laughs> mm, wow. and, and thank god man we're here uh almost yeah. nine years later so we're thankful man yeah well one uh last question for you and then i'll sure. let you i'll let you go uh get get to all the stuff that i'm sure <laughs> is still on the agenda for the evening um, dude i'm done i'm done man but kid you not man i'm having my my vino man and uh I'm, I'm hanging for the rest of the night so this has been a pleasure man i i really really appreciate what you're doing man it's great man thanks man well it was a pleasure rapping with you um 
and you mentioned that you come that you kind of come from a long line of of musicians do you see any of that in your kids absolutely man yeah absolutely uh i've got a couple of daughters man that are just crazy talented like i mean singing and artistically man um and then piano like they're tinkering around tinkering around with the piano with the acoustic guitar um jasmine my oldest she plays flute she plays guitar she she's just a natural killer alto voice mm. aria is my middle daughter a killer singer man i mean she's just doing great and great ear um and then gianna and ava both of them are just just artsy as heck and um you know so to see that in them and know that we got a fifth generation musicians coming up. It just, I mean, we're just excited. We're so excited for them, man, you know, and I wouldn't push this business on them, Brian, you know, right. you know what it's like doing this for a living. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's a very, uh, it's a volatile business. It's tough, but you know, so there, so are a lot of careers, but mm -hmm. this is an industry that could be extremely rewarding to you also i mean you know what it's like to travel the world you know what it's like to be able to sing your own music and get money and pay mm -hmm. get paid for that right. and play and then play with other people and meet people i mean to me it's like this is the this is an anomaly of a business but it's one of the greatest things on on earth to be able to do and and actually call your livelihood you know so it's i'm not gonna shy i'm not gonna tell them don't do it mm -hmm. but i'm gonna i'm, I'm just gonna say look get a business education, yeah. go to college, get a business education. You want to be artsy and you want to pursue music, do it. But you're going to have to understand how to sell and monetize this. Right. And that's where a lot of musicians don't know what the hell they're doing right. is that they're talented. I mean, I'm in Nashville with 150 million singer songwriters that all sing their tail off and write great songs, but a good 85% of them don't know how to monetize anything. Mm -hmm. like it's or, or it's market a, right i mean or market promote yeah. self-promotion and you know it's interesting you know you said you have to wear a, a number of hats and i totally agree with that if someone was to ask me how do you do it how do you pay your bills and 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 at, you know achieve a level of success it's do yep. everything and do everything right. the best you can That's understand right. all of the aspects of it from conception of a song to recording the song you know staffing the band uh yeah. mixing mastering uh, art uh, okay production and um and marketing and that's and that's something that i think is developing now it, with kind of the record industry in various stages of well it's not going to go away but various stages of deconstruction you have to be the label you have to understand taking an idea ex uh, executing the idea marketing the idea monetizing the idea yeah and as you say it's it's a business degree you know we yeah. learned it just through a different way but yeah. we got to the same place right it's yeah. you have to know all the stuff all the time be on top of your shit. um yeah. so anyway i i don't know man i I'm not going to be surprised when I see the uh, Amato Sisters uh, band uh, taking over <laughs> Nashville. <laughs> you never know, man. <laughs> Who knows? You never know. Well, I'll be first in line to buy that to buy the ticket to go oh, see them. You man. know, <laughs> I, you got to come to Nashville and visit, man. You got to. I would out love to record some of these new songs you're writing, man. I, I listen, man. I would love that. I would love nothing more. I have some friends in Nashville, at, you included. So I, I would love to come see the city. I haven't been there in a minute, um, and um, 
I, I, I would love to do that. It's changed so much, Brian. And just the eight and a half years I've lived here, it's, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, it's just changed like crazy. There's been such a proliferation of people moving here. Mm-hmm. I mean, people leaving, uh, especially in the music industry, man. Right. I mean, ton of guys have left New York and live here now. A lot of people, I mean, from Jill Scott to you name it, man. Wow. Um, a lot of people have left, left LA. Right. Um, a lot of people are here now. And it's cool because it's so far past the stigma of just country music. I mean, mm. so many people live here. I mean, from Larry Carlton and Michael McDonald mm. to all, of course, yeah. All, I mean, but Kings of Leon, a lot right. of pop people are here. Justin Timberlake and his wife. I mean, there's a lot of people, man. Yeah. And the thing that's really one of the things that I love about it here, Brian, is people are so unpretentious, man. Mm. They're unpretentious. And they really, they're because they're just, they're trying to have a family and like mm. send their freaking kids to a good school, but still be who they are in whatever, whether they're an actor or, or a star or a, a great side man or whatever. But they're, mm. they just, you see them at the freaking grocery store, you see them mm. walking around the airport, nobody cares. I mean, it's mm-hmm. just kind of like everybody's, you know, just doing life very under the radar out here. And it's very cool, man. I mean, very, very cool. One, one kind of stigma, I would say that I hear on occasion about Nashville is that it's, there's kind of the old boy club. And if you don't fit in, you, they're kind of still gatekeepers. It's so true. It's, You're feeling it's, that? it's huge. Like the first three, four years I was here, you, I felt it huge. That good old boy club, big time, man. But I will say this, um, when you're here and you're just paying your dues and whatever you're doing, try to knock it out of the park, be respectful, wait your turn, do your thing. But I'll tell you what, over the last two, three years, and I was just having a conversation with a, a piano player uh, just the other day. He was saying, he's been here for 25 years. And he was saying, man, Dom, he was like, you've only been here eight and a half years, but the landscape in the last two years is completely changing here where that good old boy crap is a lot of it is starting to, you're starting to see a whole new temperature around here, man. And it's cool because it's more, it's more like it's leveling the playing field mm-hmm. instead of feeling like they're only going to call this cat for that, or they're only going to call this group of cats, this producer. Mm-hmm. I mean, now you're starting to see so many more opportunities happening and really it's going to give a, a lot more opportunity to a lot of people, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, there's great talent from everywhere, man. I mean, there's so many great cats. Mm-hmm. However, there's a lot of room in this industry for people to do well. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, we're in such a hype-filled business now, Brian, from the marketing side of things to, I mean, social media, you can make yourself look like you freaking got the world by the balls, but you you get the gig and it might be, it'll become a one-off if you really don't have the goods. Right. You know, you people can make themselves look like it's, it's, it's everything, but if, if you can't deliver, it's it, that's it. You know what I'm saying? And so we're in this game now where it's, it's like, Everybody inflates the heck out of themselves online. But the truth is, man, is that the guys who really have the talent and they're professional, like you said, show up on time, do the gig, be respectful. You know, those guys, there's always going to be a place, man. You mm-hmm. always have an opportunity to work because mm-hmm. these other guys is, are, are going to burn their bridge, man. They're going to it's 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 in and out for them. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited too. we haven't I haven't done a show in phoenix since the night we left that promenade concert and we're actually now 
just now getting started with booking a coming home show uh like just doing a show in october of this year nice. i'm working on a yeah i'm working on a record right now i haven't put out a record in 10 years man i kind of just yeah. wanted to go in a different direction in my life and explore some other facets of the industry and of myself and um and now i just feel like timing wise i want to do that and so i yeah. feel like what better place to come back to phoenix and do a, a a gig so we're looking at venues right now and we're looking at doing mid-october man so Sweet. i think that's gonna be yeah i think it's gonna be fun man well if you need an opener i'll only charge you 50 bucks and some fried chicken hey <laughs> <laughs> man i might hold you to that brother <laughs> that's not a bad rap right there man <laughs> <laughs> everything is negotiable homie hey, that's another thing hey, that I've learned. that's right <laughs> everything man man i'm so happy for you man doing this podcast bro it's killer man it's Thanks. great man i'm it's... happy for you and uh, everything else that you got your hands involved in man i'm sure you're kicking butt man well it's just nice to get some of these bands back on the road and um as i mentioned to you you know this podcast really came out of of needing to reconnect with my community and um the the isolation of the last couple of years is it you know that's that's going away this has been a very busy spring and, and as i say things are getting back on the road but i but i still love this podcast i still love connecting with friends and sharing stories and you know it's a how-to you know i kind of look yeah. at this in, in two ways one it's that kind of group therapy thing how do we how do we make it work and then another one is just a celebration of what cats are doing you know and still staying creative and and staying positive and focused on the goal so great man good for you man and, and you doing it as a band leader as an artist doing it working in all the angles that it takes to make this thing happen i mean respect to you for that and then now exactly. adding this whole other marketing tip and this archiving all of these moments mm -hmm. and do podcast thing i mean it's it's inspiring man to see you doing that and and you know it's awesome man i mean it really mm -hmm. is i remember hearing about you and seeing you back in it must have been 2009 or, or eight or nine or ten somewhere around there man and i just remember loving the fact that um you cared about the talent side and the artistic side of what you were doing and that was my first hmm. when i when i heard about you and I saw you do your thing. I think the first time I actually saw you do your thing was at Voce. Mm -hmm. I think that was the first time. And I was like, this dude is talented, man. And I, I was just like, and um, yeah, it was just a, it was a breath of fresh air, man, because there's, you know how Phoenix is, man. There's a lot of, there's a lot of great talented people, but there's so much work for a working musician. Mm -hmm. If you just want to do clubs or weddings or corporate stuff or function gigs mm -hmm. there's a lot of that stuff so people yeah. can do that until they're blue in the face right. but there's not a lot of people that will do the artsy side of the artistic side of stuff that will water your soul mm -hmm. there are a group of guys out there who are doing that and i have huge respect and admiration for those guys but there's not a lot of them Mm -hmm. and you're one of those guys man and well, who, who juggles that and does it well so thank you much respect to you for that high praise man high praise coming from you i i really appreciate that i i look back on on those early years of voce and kind of cringe i actually i remember telling florio was like uh he hired me to do a solo hit on a tuesday and um and then you know like the next tuesday he's like hey man do you mind if i sit in i'm like well 
do you know, do, I don't, you don't know, do you, you don't really know my tunes. And I say that now thinking, what a m idiot. <laughs> if anyone is going to be able to just feel what you're doing, it's Florio, right? Oh, yeah. So we, we, so we played as a duo and I was like, oh, this is really cool. He's like, hey, would you mind if Mel Brown uh, joins us? And I'm thinking, man, I don't have I don't have charts for this stuff. I can he just like can he just sit in I'm, again? What an idiot! Of course, Mel Brown is just gonna step on that stage and demolish those songs, you know. And then after that, I stopped asking questions. He's like, hey, Adam Armijo is gonna join us. Yep, great. Todd, she's gonna play percussion. Okay, we're gonna get Lamar on keys. Okay, like, and that I mean, you know. Anyway, I just I cringe about those early days thinking. Man, I did not know what I was doing. I, I did. I wasn't confident. I just had these tunes. That's all I knew. And here we go. You know. But um, no, I, I I love I love Mike. I I loved the, that time. You know, such an incredible time and and meeting such incredible players as yourself and and being immersed in this scene where it wasn't. It was about the music and really nothing else. You know, man. This is a special time and yeah. special group of cats you're mentioning, man. Uh, yeah. All just, I mean, great, great, great cats. And yeah. uh, so much to learn and just a great time, right, in Phoenix yeah. that we were all blessed to be a part of that scene. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen Mike, I think, since I left. And so if you see him, give him a hug for me. And I Mike, will... if you're listening, I love you, man. <laughs> we got to get together next time I'm in Arizona, man. Yeah. Well, and put me on that list too, man. We, we need to hang. We do, man. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, man. Appreciate your time, Dominic. Thank you very much. And um, we'll be in touch soon. Man, my pleasure. Thanks for having me, brother. Of course. <laughs> cool. See you, man. <laughs>